Hey, this is Chuck Dixon, and you're listening to Signal of Doom. <laughs> well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Signal of Doom. I'm Dave, I'm here with Rich, and we have J.M. DeMatteis. J.M., how are you? I am good, thank you. How are you guys doing? We're doing fantastic, and I want to say thanks for coming on, J.M. I know you and your wife had recently been hit by COVID, and we really appreciate your time, and I hope you're doing okay now. Yes, all, all is well, all is well. But I have to say, it's you know everyone's pretending COVID's over, and I know more people that have had it in the past month or so that have had it in the past two years. 100%. So everyone still has to be careful. You know, there's a lot. It's it's still out there, and these new strains are very, very contagious. Hundred percent, man. And we have it here. It's still, you know, in Australia. We didn't have it as bad as you guys, but you're hundred percent right. But I think, I mean, I'm just thinking people seem to be a bit weary of it. I think you know what I mean. So there's a bit of denial yeah, going yeah. on. You know, but you know, there's a thin line between between uh, between being weary and being in denial. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, hundred percent. The two are allied. Now, JM, um, some sad news that, that we woke up to today here in Australia. Um, sadly, George Perez has passed away after an illness. And I was wondering, you know, uh, considering the length of your career, I mean, we did you know uh, George Perez well? And did you, ever you know, work with him? I did believe it. I was just thinking about this because I only I only saw the news like maybe an hour and a half ago. Mm-hmm. It's so, so sad. Mm. Um, you know, even when you know it's coming, <laughs> even, or maybe the fact that we knew it's coming made it even more heartbreaking. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I, I did not know, you know, we, we circled each other through the years. Mm. And the only time I ever even came close to working with him was he was writing Silver Surfer right before I was. Right. And uh, I was left with a, my first issue was a George Perez plot that I dialogued. Right. Uh, I'm sorry that I ever worked with him because uh, even though I didn't know him, I admired the hell out of him. I mean, who didn't? Oh, yeah. Uh, his work was just... Um, you know, uh, close to Kirby. Uh, Kirby is the god of gods for me, you know, and I would put George up there close to Kirby with his vision, with his ability to just make all these characters come alive on a page and to fit more characters in on a page than anybody and make them all work. You know, it's one thing to crowd a page. It's another thing to crowd a page and give every person on that page an individual personality. Yeah. And that, you know, that was one of the amazing things that he could do. So, um Sad, isn't it? You know, but, yeah, a lot. It, well it is. It's just, you know, you, you you can grasp for words, but in the end, yeah, it's just sad. And he could have been around for another, you know, for many more years. Yeah, he wasn't that old, you know. And no, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I have I have one memory, not directly of him, but it relates to him. In that, when I was first starting out in the business, I was up at DC at the very beginning of my career. I was in Len Wein's office. Len was kind of a mentor to me in the beginning, and Marv Wolfman was there. And Teen Titans number one, which was, you know, Marvin George at their finest, yep. had just come out. And and they were just sharing their joy about, you know, they didn't expect that book to be a massive big hit. Mm. And I think I think Marvin, maybe Marvin George had gone to some convention and got a standing ovation. I remember they were just both like two little kids, really, really excited <laughs> about this book that was so pivotal to their careers and to George's career, you know? But yeah. he left his imprint on so many books. Yeah, yeah. I'm just oh, thinking uh, JLA Avengers, all sorts of stuff like yeah. yeah, you know, I'm no expert, but what I do know is this: this was a guy who just, when you looked at his drawings and stuff, it was just, it was very much his own style, and 
as you say, I, I always think of like big crowd shots, like, and everyone, as you say, had their own sort of feel. It's it's amazing how he could do it. Yeah, like, you know. yeah, feel, personality, body language. You know, he wasn't I, just throwing a bunch of characters in. Yeah. He was thinking I, I, about I each one of those think, characters. Uh, I don't even think Infinite Crisis would have um, worked without him. I, I think. Um, a crisis of infinite earth i think oh yeah um, yeah I, I, if it hadn't been for him being able to fit that ability to fit everyone on a page i don't even think that event would have been as successful as it was no and that's true of comics in general you know um i don't care how brilliant the writer is mm. if you're not matched with an artist a great artist and if the two of you don't have the right chemistry it ain't gonna work. It's a visual yeah. medium, and it's it's, it's both people together. And I always say, even if you know, if I've got a story in my head for 15, 20 years, it doesn't come alive in a comic book until that artist brings it to life. So the moment that pencil hits paper, that artist is the co-creator of that of that uh, property. So, you know? so true, man. Well, we at Signal. I mean, we wish we wish him well. I know Richard. Uh, you met him uh, at a convention once, and he signed something for you. I yeah. uh, drew you a green Lovely, lantern, man. I believe, from memory. Yeah, lovely man. So we, we, we love him here on Signal. Now, uh, you've got a question, Rich, about uh, the Ben Riley. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, James, um, uh, again, happy, happy to chat to you again. It's uh, been a long time. We enjoyed our last conversation. Um, I'm just wondering, we've been, uh, you've been uh, doing the Ben Riley uh, recently, and we've been, uh, we've been reading that on the show. Um, how's that been for you? You uh, having a lot of fun diving back into uh, a, a 90s character and book? It's been great because I liken it to an old friend that you haven't seen in a few years. But you have, you know, you have such a connection and such chemistry <clears throat> that the minute they walk in the room, you just pick up where you left off. That's the way. Yeah, it's like, like, like like no time has passed. That yes, exactly, and that's what it's felt like on this book. It really feels like uh, I, these these characters feel real to me. They feel like my friends. I know them, so mm. it feels like a reunion with an old friend. And then we, you know, I get to have Doctor Kafka in there and and Vermin, and you know, mm -hmm. so it's like it's old home week for me, or old home <laughs> old home five months, I should say. Um, do you think yeah, you'll so have more of? Uh, I know the miniseries is kind of coming towards an end. Uh, do you think you'll do more in that sort of like Ben Riley kind of ninety Spider Man setting? Um. There will be more of something. Yeah. I can't quite say what it is yet. Sure. That's <laughs> that. <laughs> I like it. Um, now, I, I um, am a massive Ghost Rider fan, JM. And um, when you came on for your fantastic Ghost Rider run in the early 80s with Don Pearl and, and Bob Busianski, I hope that's how I say his Budiansky. name. Budiansky. Yeah. Most, most of it was with Bob. Yeah, Don yeah. did a couple of films, but most of it was with Bob. Yeah, and it's great. I love it. Um, now, I believe you were told by Marvel um, that this was a book close to the brink of cancellation. Um, did you feel that that knowledge lit a fire on you, that you knew there was an end point? You know, well, in the beginning, we didn't know there was an end point. In mm. the beginning, we just came on the book at a certain point while yep. we were working on it. They said, uh, we're killing the book. But what, sometimes they tell you they're killing the book and they're killing it next month. Yeah. yeah. And you don't have time to do anything. My memory is, and, and bear with me, it was a long time ago, yeah, yeah, that um, they gave us a lot of notice. So, you know, you read that run and it actually comes to a real conclusion, yeah. you know, a real ending for the characters and, and, and really wraps up their lives, you know. Yeah. And that's a very rare thing in comics to end with a true ending as opposed to, you know, sometimes a book gets canceled and... And you and you end on a cliffhanger, you know, because yeah. it's just they just pull out the plug and that's it. It's gone, you know. So that was a great thing. And Bob, Bob was the first artist that I ever co-plotted with. So we right. would, you know, we would get on the phone and talk for an hour or two, and 
And then I, you know, then I'd go and write up the plot, and then he'd draw it, and I dialogue, and it was just a great, great collaboration. Was, Bob was a great guy, and we uh, had a wonderful time working together. I love that scene. Uh, I was reading it again last night, just before this interview. Um, in the last issue, a Ghost Rider is reduced down to his pure skeletal form, and he's like, "I never needed Blaze," and then suddenly there's like dot dot dot. I needed him, and you're like, "Wow, this, this was Ghost Rider, the actual spirit of vengeance reduced," you know, like to a very sort of like, to the base level. And um, I have a friendly debate with the Inner Demons podcast, Jane, which I want you to weigh in on. Now, to me, okay. to me, Ghost Rider, roaming from town to town on the open road as the rider, I always say feels like freedom. But Brian Biggie over there at Inner Demons, he always said, tells me the rider is a curse. What do you think, JM? So is it freedom or is it a curse? Well, it's a curse for it's a curse for Johnny Blaze for yeah, sure. Yeah, I guess. You know, um, I think I think Zarathos is having a good time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you he, know, he's enjoying uh, it, isn't he? When he gets when he gets loose, he's really enjoying himself. Yes, he's having a great time. Um, <laughs> you know, it's an interesting question, but I think for Johnny, there might be you know what. There might be moments of freedom for him on the open road when he's just being himself. But yeah. once that thing takes over, yeah. it's a very different story. All bits it's like off. saying, you know, hey, is Bruce Banner having fun wandering? Well, I guess it's more it's more fun for Johnny because he is a motorcycle guy. So he likes being out on the open road, whereas Bruce was just yeah. always just wandering around in shredded clothes. Yeah, running around, <laughs> jumping around. <laughs> now, um, and, and, he, yeah. and he always managed to find purple pants. I know. It's amazing. Now, as an aside, I've actually asked Don Perlin to come on the show, JM. He's still kicking in his 90s, man. That's amazing to me, uh, and handling a social I media know, and everything. I know, It's great. It's uh, great to see Moon Knight out there on Disney+, and I hope that Don got a nice check out of it, you know? Oh, you, you've taken the words right out of my mouth, and, and God bless him for, for being a creator on that. Now, um, Rich, you've got, a, you've got a question on one of your favourites. Uh, yeah, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, so, uh, uh, Jane, one of my... Uh, uh, favorite um, stuff of yours is actually the uh, the Creature Commandos. It's actually a title I wish really. DC That's amazing. <laughs> oh no! I mean, well, one. I mean, I'm a big Universal Monsters fan, right, and right. the idea of you know, uh, quote unquote, the Universal Monsters sort of um, uh, being enlisted in the military, <laughs> being a, a, a you know commando force, I just think is is quite fascinating. Now, obviously, it's not the actual. Um, no, no, but it's close monsters. enough. But but I, I I just love that idea, that concept. Um, well, I'll tell now, you how that came about. Or let's. Well, ask you a question first. Go ahead. Yeah. So what I was going to say is like, what was what was the genesis of that? And like, uh, is it is it? Uh, did you want to use the Universal monsters, but obviously like licensing stuff, or was the uh, the original idea to have really make them like uh, allegories? The, the the genesis is a very very simple one. I needed to sell a story. <laughs> I had just I had just, literally was the very very beginning of my career. I, and and when I started at DC in the late seventies, um, they the way you broke in was on those anthology comics, and it was House of Mystery and House of Secret mm. and Weird War Tales. I think my first published story came out in Weird War Tales, um, with the with the deathless title the blood boat about a vampire on a PT boat, you know? Yeah. And to sell to those books, man, you had to just dig up every, every monster story you could possibly think of and find a way to make it unique and interesting. So I'm selling stories to weird war tales. And I think weird or monsters fighting world war two. I can sell that. <laughs> and here's what happened though. I was just as I was about to pitch that to Paul Levitz, who was editing the book. That's when the infamous DC implosion happened. Uh Oh, if, if the, 
folks know what I'm talking about, DC had a like a big collapse in like was it 78, I think? Was it 70? Yeah, I think it was. Like, for, yeah, it was June of 78, because I had only been selling them scripts for like six months. Oh, no. And the first people that were thrown out the window were the new people. Yeah, and I was brand always new. Is they didn't the, need to always is me. the case, isn't it, JM? You're always the first to go. <laughs> and I remember Paul coming out and sitting in the sitting in the in the waiting room and explaining to me what is happening and there's not going to be any more work. And I shuffled off. With, with a broken heart you know my band had just broken up and now i have no work it was like not a good way to start the summer as i recall <laughs> um and um but like a year later maybe eight eight or nine months later i started to get work again and eventually i started working with len ween and then len had taken over weird war tales and he had he wanted to have uh, a, a series for weird war tales and i thought I got one. <laughs> I still because you never throw out an idea. That's lesson number one. Yep. Sometimes it takes like uh, five minutes to sell it. Sometimes it takes five years. I've had things that have taken twenty five years to sell, wow. but never get rid of those ideas. And so I pitched him the Creature Commandos idea, and, and he might have come up with the title. I don't know if I had that title, but I said, "Here's the premise. You know, the, you know for psychological warfare, the you know the the military decides to turn these people into these classic monster archetypes. You know, and Lynn went with it, and that was." Uh, that and, and I Vampire and House of Mystery were the, the first two things I ever created in comics. Wow. That were mine. Yeah. And and that with the um was it always your intention to make the, the human the monster? Or, or was that more something was it a gradual idea as you were you writing? You know, I don't I don't know if I sat down and said, hmm, the human will be the monster. Isn't that clever? You know? But I think as I wrote it, as the characters emerged. That's what you see. That's that's the way the characters led me. You know, uh, uh, the, the other ones were more sympathetic than he was. But but as if I recall, even he, there was a germ of humanity in him that you could poke at. You know, and I'm amazed that people still remember that. And I know they've done a bunch of animated things. It was just an animated short, like a year or two ago, in one of the uh, one of the you know the Warner Brothers uh, DVDs. Uh, they cool. did a whole bunch of shorts. I wrote a Death short and an Adam Strange short, and yeah. they had a Creature Commando short on there too. I think it was Batman Death in the Family. I think it was on that one. Gotcha. So all yeah. these years later, there they are. And I have to say, as goofy a concept as it is, <laughs> I think it would make a great movie. Totally agree. Totally agree. Well, I mean, yeah. but the thing is, I mean, I actually think it's a concept that they that they could use almost indefinitely. I mean, if you look at like the, you know, I mean, Vietnam, you know, Afghanistan, I, I kind of feel like it's, it, I, I, it's so weird to me that this is an idea that's been shelved when you could use them. Yeah, like for like any sort of conflict or, or storyline or anything like that. So well, you take you take the classic, you know, World War II movie, you know, of the era, yeah. the classic universal monster movie, and you mm. mash it together. Oh, do yeah. it in black and white. Yeah. You have to do it in black and white. Rich black and white, you know, cinematography. Wow. I think it would be great. The, the longest yeah. day with the Creature Commandos. That'd be fun. <laughs> so, I, you broke up. I didn't hear what you said. I was saying the longest day with the Creature Commandos. Right. Right, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Now, uh, one thing I've always wondered, uh, and I'm glad I got to ask you, so later on in the, the, the series, you introduced uh, Dr. Myrna Rhodes as um, the Gorgon. I did not. I did not. That no? was after I left. I think that was... Um, oh. Rich, come on. The race, what, what happened to the research, Rich? Come on. Well, I think I was it was Bob Kaniger. I think it was right, Bob Kaniger. Here's what but happened. I've always, I've because always I've, wondered why that okay. was introduced and not the creature from the Black Lagoon, <laughs> which right, right, a more, a more, answer, a more classic obviously. character. But no, since I didn't do it, oh. I see what you're saying though. Since they were all classic characters, why not another classic character? Oh, a creature from the Black Lagoon would have been good. Would have been a good I one. I like that. Yeah, but what happened was, you know, I, I had been, you know, 
selling my stuff to DC now. It's like probably 1980 or so. Mm. And and I'm working on uh, Creature Commandos and House of Mystery. And I started doing some Batman stuff, some other things. Mm. And right about six issues into Creature Commandos and, and I Vampire, I got an offer from Marvel that I couldn't refuse. Yeah. So uh, I went cool. off and other people took over both those series. And I mean, what a you know, this this is the industry, isn't it? You've got to move around, and you're making your yeah. name, making yeah. your bones. Uh, now, I want to mention something. Uh, Brooklyn Dreams. The last time we spoke, JM, you mentioned this to me, saying it was one of your. Um, I think you said it was one of your most personal stories, one of your favourites. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I and you know what? I went and 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 got it and read it, and I was amazed. It's so personal. It's obviously uh, autobiographical, JM. Um, it is, yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, I honestly, no, no joking. The last book that I have read that affected me so much was Bob Dylan's Chronicles. When I read that, I was like, "That's about as good a book as I've ever read." This one, it just got me. I, I was like, wow. I, "I was amazed, man," because on the surface, I, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought it would be my natural thing. But I was like, "Amazing!" Now it's such a natural read. You're writing without any of the, you know, contrivances of superhero fiction. It's very direct, very pure. Did this book write itself quickly, um, or did you take a long time on it before placing it with a publisher? Let me let me remember. Yeah. Originally, you know, I got the idea to do this when we were doing Moonshadow at Epic Comics. Right. Uh, another one of my all-time favorite projects. Mm. And within the content, there was a whole Brooklyn background in Moonshadow. We would do these little vignettes. Uh, Moonshadow's mother was uh, was from Brooklyn, so we'd flash back to her childhood and do these little Brooklyn flashbacks. I call them, mm. and I thought. Well, wouldn't it be fun to do a whole story that's just set in the Brooklyn of my childhood, you know? And I almost did it for Epic. I don't remember why I didn't, but again, tucked it away probably for another 10, 12, 15 years, you know? Right. Yeah. And uh, and DC was launching a new imprint at the time called Piranha Press, mm-hmm. run by a guy named Mark Nevelo. These pro- the properties ultimately got folded into uh, Paradox Press, but it started as Piranha Press. And I pitched them the idea. I, you know, I had my original outline from you know 1985 and re- revised it and pitched it. And they they bought it, and I had a vision in my head of what this book was going to look like. Mm. And he he opened. I remember Mark opened this drawer and said, "What do you think of this guy?" He pulled out Glenn Barr's artwork, mm. and I went, "That's what I've been seeing in my head." Yeah, you know that doesn't happen very often, and that's what that whole collaboration was like. But to your to your main question. It was both the easiest and most difficult thing I think I ever wrote because these were stories I'd been telling people my whole life. You know, uh, let me tell you about when this happened. Let me tell you about when that happened. You you sit around with your friends and you tell these stories. Mm. The flip side is because it was so intensely personal. I mean, I gave the characters different names. I wanted to be free to not have to worry about, well, was this exactly, did it happen on this day? Was it exactly? No, I wanted to get to the essence of the story. Mm. Not, I didn't have to get every detail right. So I, I, to say that it's fictionalized, it's fictionalized in the slightest way, you know, by changing the names. And so I, that freed me up to really tell it. But because it was all personal and true, mm. as, along with being the easiest thing, it was maybe the scariest thing I ever wrote. I remember writing that book and feeling like I was on a tightrope and one misstep and I was going to fall. And then you put that out in the world, something that's that personal, you yeah. know? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's interesting. It's now, very all, vulnerable. All the, work, you know? all the work is personal, but it could be personal filtered through Spider-Man, you know? Yes. Um, that's very different when it's just basically, here's how it happened to me, you know? Yeah, and but, I, uh, yeah, Glenn Barr's art is fantastic. Like, And he varies the... Uh, like, you know, I, I, I'm not an art critic, but you almost think two different people are drawing it at times. The, the, yes, it, it's so, that was the idea. Know, yeah. That was the idea. 
the modern, the more, the more farther in time, closer to the present moment we are, mm. the more realistic the art is. So that the narrator is drawn very realistically. The farther back in memory you go, the more distorted it is, the more cartoony everything gets. Yeah. Now I sense when I was reading, there's a lot of. Um kind of darkness in it and it sort of surprised me i was like wow this is very you know very open very vulnerable i sensed and and i sensed this is me putting my book you know uh analysis on that there were further demons and potentially trauma that's only hinted at in the text and i and i almost feel like a therapist james like go deeper um mm-hmm. am i right in saying that i i got the feeling like yeah, you, you absolutely are that's yeah. a very very astute reading yeah. there were certain things in there mm. And it had more to do with uh, the impact it would have on family members. Gotcha. Yeah. I just didn't want to push through that door. No. Now, you know, one, one can read my other work and look at certain things that crop up and maybe piece it all together, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, and at the same time, by not touching on it completely, mm. You leave that door open for people to project into that yes. and bring their own pain and their own trauma to it as well. And it kind yeah. of what's interesting about stories like this is that they're very, very specific. And yet, hopefully, if you do it right, they become universal. Because I've talked to people in other countries, you know, say, oh, I live in Italy and yet I read this book, or I live in Spain and I read this book, and it felt like my life. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. a great thing. That's yeah. really a great yeah. thing. It's amazing, and uh, look, it, I honestly would recommend it to listeners. You can get that there's it's been reprinted. It's out there now. At the time when it came out, I mean, I, I wasn't aware of it. Um, was it was it a big hit? Like, did you get nominated for awards? Like when this came, it seems no, like a, no, really. I mean, it was, yeah. What I saw was the people within the industry that read it really, really got it and appreciated yeah. it. Yeah. And I don't think it ever got out there in a big way. Sure. It took them years. It took DC years to even collect it. Yeah. And then we uh, then then about I don't know six years ago seven years ago we took it to IDW they put out a nice hardcover version and that's what it's I've been got, reprinted yeah. all over the world and now we got it back from IDW and we are in the in, in this very moment talking to a new publisher to try to do sort of the ultimate edition of Brooklyn Dreams fantastic and is this something that I mean obviously I think you wrote this in the in the mid nineties or it was yeah. published then um, is this something where you would plan sequels because it's really a snapshot when you're quite young. And uh, did you, yes. could, would you think, you know what, I could do, I'm just pitching here, but like in the mid-80s when I'm doing Craven's Last Hunt, could I do a sort of autobiographical thing around that time period? Do you, do you ever think of that kind of stuff? Other people have asked me that, you know, and and it's something that, that when it comes up, I go, that's a really great idea. And then I'm off to some other idea. Sure. I may come back to it at some point because I, there's a lot, obviously, there's a lot to be said. And and, and it's funny that you picked that period, too, because during the 80s, when, when that was going on, mm. there was a lot going on in my life that would make for... Uh, well, it might, might make good good reading for you. I don't know how much fun it would well, be for me. But that's what I'm thinking because I always remember it when I read because you know I, I I know you I was uh, you from your, your public persona very affable very you know nice and all this and then when I read your Craven's Last Hunt um, intro you were going through a very dark time I think you were saying yes. whether it was alcohol or whatever and I'm like man like no 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 not alcohol not alcohol never had a problem like no no I was going through a really bad divorce at that time ah so right was, okay yeah I just remember it was oh, sorry I'm remembering that you were going through a dark period dark yeah, period it was a very, and I always said that had I written Craven's Last Hunt you know a year before or a year after it would have been a different story because yeah. I wouldn't have been in that space I look back at that story now and every character is some aspect of my own psyche. And I didn't, you know, wow. you don't realize it sometimes when you're doing it. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. But you know what I mean? But it's it's me working out my stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, me yeah. Working no, out I, my stuff. You know, I like it, I said, yeah. you know, a year or two later, I would have been happy as a clam, and it wouldn't <laughs> it wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have been the same story. Yeah, Craven I think one might of the not have. Why that story lasted is because, aside from the brilliant art of Mike Zeck That's and Bob right. McLeod, you yeah. know, which is the biggest selling point, I think. Beautiful. I think the pain is authentic. The struggle of is authentic. Peter coming back from the grave. Oh, yeah. In the name of love is authentic, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's down there for a, so I, for a few days, isn't he? Like down under the, he's yeah, actually buried yeah. alive. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, no. I mean, you you don't need to be a university kind of like level an analyst to realize that there's some genuine darkness and trauma mixed into the fiction there for sure. It's yeah. It's breathing. Yeah, well, you know, here's the truth. We talk about Brooklyn Dreams. Mm. Everything is autobiographical. I don't care. Yeah. I always bring up this example because it seems slightly absurd to me. Edgar Rice Burroughs writes the John Carter of Mars book, you know, just pure fantasy. It's John Carter. It's big, giant Martians, and they're fighting each other yep. and carrying on. And I always say, I bet you, if you knew Edgar Rice Burroughs really well, you could pick up that book and go, huh? that's Edward, Edgar, all right. You know what I mean? Sure. That we all bore ourselves. I don't care. It may be disguised in, in superheroes or fantasy or whatever the thing may be in some fictional way. Mm. But underneath all that, Mm. is all the same truth that I poured into Brooklyn Dreams. So I think everything is autobiographical in the end. Yeah, and that, that, yeah, I agree with you completely, and I think that applies to a lot of singer-songwriters and all that kind of stuff as yes. well. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, now, well, I mean, that's thank you for answering my question, because I loved it. Now, Rich, you've got a question? Yes, we're just going to, uh, Jane, we're just going to break up the, the deep dives just Sorry. to have some wacky questions. In okay, between. sure. Um, please explain um, Scooby-Doo Apocalypse to me. Um, <laughs> like, I, I actually really enjoyed it, um, but I was just like, blown. I was just like, whose idea was this? Who? Because uh, I know DC was going through this big uh, sort of Hanna Barbera right. sort of right. like uh, resurgence, or, or sort of like trying to build a franchise around it. Like, was this like your uh, pitch, or were you pitched no. No, the no, idea? No, 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 and no. it was actually Jim Lee's idea. Really? He came up with the premise. He was a huge Scooby-Doo fan. And so, you know, I always say that I'll work with Keith Giffen on anything. I don't care what it is. You know what I mean? It could, <laughs> it could be Millie the model. If Keith called up and said, let's do Millie the model, I'm in, you know? So one day the phone rings and Keith says to me, you want to do Scooby-Doo with me? And it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and he laid out the premise, you know, Jim Lee had called him and asked if we wanted to do it. And... My, my reaction is just what I said. It's Keith. Let's give it a whirl. Yeah. And I thought, I don't know here. What Scooby? First of all, I was never someone. I didn't grow up, you know, watching a lot of Scooby-Doo cartoons. But the funny thing was, right around the same time, because I do a lot of animation work, I got approached to write for a show called Be Cool Scooby-Doo. I had never written any Scooby-Doo or anything. <laughs> and I ended up doing like five episodes of that show. So that was like my Scooby-Doo college, you know, where yeah. I learned about Scooby-Doo. And the great thing about the comic was, it ended up being a lot of fun, mm. you know, because I went into it, you know, kind of skeptically. I mean, you give it your very best. You know, it, it doesn't affect the work, but part of it's like, what are we going to do here? You know, really? And then once we got rolling, it was really, really fun. And we had, you know, Howard Porter and a lot of other really great artists uh, on yeah. that book, too. And, and, and it lasted like three years. It lasted longer than any of those other Hanna-Barbera books. And it mm. was a blast. And, you know, I, I one day I was saying to somebody, God, I really love Scrappy-Doo. And I, what did I just say? What did I just say? <laughs> you know? 
But, you know, we brought in our own version of Scrappy-Doo, and he was like this great, cool character, you know? Um, so it was, it was, you know, you always have to be open to unexpected things in life and, and in a career. Yeah. And, and you, have to, you have to be ready to say yes. First of all, sometimes you just say yes because you need the gig. Yeah. And sometimes <laughs> you say yes because, well, I've never written a Scooby-Doo cartoon before. I've never written a Scooby-Doo comic before. Let's see if we can do this and see what it's like. It's a challenge, you know? And and how did you guys come up with the idea of the apocalypse? <laughs> like That was what, all like... the premise, you know? That was the premise that Jim pitched us. And then ah. we took then we took it and we built it out and created all the, you know, uh, modernized the characters, created all the other new characters and the monsters and everything else yeah. that was going on, you know? It's a wild um, comic. We did it on the show. It's it, it's an absolutely wild read. Uh, we, we really enjoyed it. Now, now I've got a, another uh, book that I, I, after I finished Brooklyn Dreams, uh, JM, I was like, man. Uh, and then I, I Googled and I found Seekers into the Mystery. Now mm -hmm. this is a is I should mention has has been come out as a four hundred page soft cover collection which you can get off Amazon which I did I got a, I got a copy right. from Richard as well. This is from greatness. Books, yeah. This is greatness, JM. Now, um, was well, this thank a, you. was yeah? Well, I honestly mean it. I I love this. Now, was this pretty much a dream project for you? Because even the title Seekers into the Mystery fits, seems like a mission statement. Do you recall where you were and how you felt when you embarked on this project? Yeah, I know exactly where I was. Um, you, you read the introduction. That's why you're asking me that question. Um, I was in India. And uh, I, I, I um, from, since I was uh, 19 years old, I have been, I hate the word follower because it creates the wrong, the wrong impression. But, but my spiritual teacher slash master is, uh, is Avatar Mir Baba. I was in India at his ashram and I was in his tomb shrine. This is where his, he's, he's buried right. in, the, in his tomb. And I laid my head on his tomb and this story came to me literally. And this happens, you know, in other places, but I literally laid my head on the tomb mm. and I, I saw like circles of story mm. and I went, Whoa, this is really cool. And I remember, I think it was on the plane on the way home from India where I just started writing up these ideas that mm. were coming to me mm. about what this could be and who is this character and what kind of journey is he going on and where is it going to end, you know? Mm. And I basically got back and wrote those up and pitched it to Karen Berger. Mm. And she said, let's do it. And then uh, Shelley, Shelley Bond, who was Shelley Roberg back in those days, mm -hmm. uh, was the editor. It was for, and she was just, Karen and Shelley both just amazing, amazing people and amazing editors. And uh, I think it was Shelley who had the idea of like, why don't we use different artists for different arcs? Which idea. was great. So we got to have Glenn Barr and John J. Muth and um, Jill Thompson and yeah. Michael Zuli. And I mean, on and on. It was just, just fantastic. And um, we lasted a couple of years, I think. And then mm. unfortunately, they pulled the plug. And if looking back now, probably the sales that we had then, mm. if we had now, we'd be a bestseller, you know, but but the market has changed since then. And, and, so uh, was and that was one I was I was caught, you know, really caught in the middle. And I had a, that was one where I had to wrap up a final story yeah. really quickly. Yeah. So I was never quite satisfied with the finale. Sure, um, but 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 I mean, I'm a sometimes I'm a, but like you can't control that, you know, when they're going to cancel. No, book, you but can't. The you journey can't. on that book, it, it it is amazing. And as a writer, um, who I assume you have to you you put a lot of your own questions and searchings into a book work like yes. this. Did you feel in the process of writing a book like Seekers Into the Mystery, you actually stumble on some inner or outer truths yourself, like Always. in doing it? That, yeah. You know, that's the reason why why that's the first reason why I write. Right. 
Mm. You know, the first reason why I write is to write for myself, mm. for my own inner journey, to work out my stuff. It's therapy. It's it's sure. spiritual work. It's all those things. You know, mm. then you write. I don't. I didn't even say for an audience. I kind of picture. I'm going to go off 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 the path a little bit. Mm. I always kind. Of, I kind of picture someone who was like me, and that when I was, uh, say, a teenager, young adult. You know, if I found an author that I really, really loved, I was a very, very passionate reader, and I took these books into my heart. Mm. And that's the that's how I imagine the audience. You know, like that kind of audience. And then, of course, you want to please your editor and you want to please your artist. Sure. Um, but there's all those. But the first layer is just what you said. It's just it's it's going on your own journey. Yeah. You want it. You know, at least for me, that's what it is, because I'm always, you know, working on something in my head. Yeah. So. yeah. Did you know the so when you when you're reading it and those you have this repetitive um, scene at the start of many of the chapters where it yes. says it's raining grace now. Yes. And then you find out what that means, um, which is awesome. Now, did that actually come to you like in a dream or a vision, like that concept of it's raining grace? Was it, you know, was it in the tomb where you thought of it, like, you know, with your teacher? You know, I have to say, honestly, I don't remember. Mm. Although the character of the old woman who was a dancer yes. was very, 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 very loosely based on a real, a real woman. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, she was going to, the next, the next storyline I was going to do in Secrets was the one I was really, really looking forward to. And she was going to figure in that gotcha. when she was younger. Um, and I never got to write it. That was my biggest regret when they canceled us was like, I really wanted to get to that next arc. You know, I really wanted to get to that next arc. It's a, it's a fantastic but, uh, collection though. Like even what it is, it's, it's a nice big collection. Now, yeah. I've got a couple of questions because I am a bit uh, into this kind of stuff. Did you um, ever have in your life like a contact experience or touch like past lives or memories in therapy or meditation? Has that ever happened to you? At the risk of sounding to some people uh, slightly unmoored, yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, well, hey, but, <laughs> hey, man, I'm asking the questions. I'm completely unmoored when I, when I read this kind of stuff. I'm like, wow, this is someone I feel who – yeah. So, do you want to detail it? Like, has it been an alien thing, or uh, no, is no, it, no, 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 not the not the alien part of it, mm. but the past life part for mm. sure. I've had mm. some very some very very profound mm. profound experiences uh, of of past life stuff that have uh, cool. really that were were so concrete and so real, and in one in 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 one case shared with another person. Wow. Uh, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I do. Yeah. And 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 in fact, that next arc that was coming up in Seekers was our main character's past life, dealing where he knew that old woman that died in the fifth issue when they were young and yeah. they were lovers, you know? Man, that would have um, been awesome. That would have been great, J.M. Could yeah, you ever write yeah. that now? Like, I mean, you, you're a big name. Do you, could you get the, you know, a, a, an artist and, and do a sort of, sort of like either a sequel or kind of like, you know, a spiritual successor now? Yeah, that's a possibility. I've always thought, you know, because the story that I had in mind for the follow-up, the past life story, mm. Uh, with with some slight tweaking, doesn't really have to be about Lucas Hart. You know, mm. it could be about a whole new protagonist. Mm. So there there is always that possibility. So now we need a Brooklyn Dream sequel. We need a Secret yeah, sequel. We need you to get <laughs> and, and you know, and the thing as well I like about this storyline is yeah, it's 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 way out there, but it's also grounded by that very cynical kind of author you know screenwriter going through hollywood like it, it's it, you know it, it's grounded in the real world you know in a yes. real way and yes. i think that helps that you do that because otherwise it, it's just pure it could just be pure fantasy but you actually ground it back 
which I think really right. sort of humanizes. He's, he's, he's struggling, you know. He's in a, he's a, he, he you know he he's uh, divorced. He's dealing with his ex-wife. He's dealing yeah. with his daughter. He's dealing with a lot of stuff. Yeah, exactly. and and that's all grounded stuff. And then the door opens on the second, third, fourth layer of reality, hundred percent, and sends him off on this journey. Now I've got a question for you. Um, now. I'm a big sort of proponent, or not proponent, but, you know, I'm fascinated by the computer program. We're all in a simulation thing that's very popular now and right. sort of so tempting to believe in. And a lot of people have bought into it. But, JM, when I read your books and your works that deal with the nature of reality and spirituality, I don't feel it's leading to a reveal that we're all run by machines like Matrix no. style. You, no, you're, you're not, not into that, are you? That's not you, is it? No. It's, you know... And, and you see it in seekers. And if you get into a lot of uh, Eastern religions and just the mystical core of, of many, if not most religions, there's this idea that the world is an illusion, mm. that the world is not, not that it's a program, mm. but that it's an illusion. And if we want to, if we want to do a, a deep dive, I'll keep it a little shorter because I know you have other things to talk about. Sure. The idea that God is dreaming this dream, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all of creation is a dream from wh however you want to picture God, you know? Yeah. He, him, her, it, yeah. they, whatever it is, this dream is 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 coming from God's God's unconscious, and mm. it's almost like a writer in his story is the way I see it, mm. in that there are all these you and I, the three of us, we're all characters in this dream, yeah, and yet we're all part of God's consciousness, which means that if you if you take away the veil of our individual identities, which is just a book of fiction, what you have underneath is God, so that. Each and every one of us mm. is the totality of God. And the game, to me, is about waking up to that truth. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You know, I, I and, dig it, man. I dig it heavily, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, then there's like, you know, there's there's two roads after that. The one road is like, well, I know that I'm God now. I want to get out of here and stop this illusion thing and just be one with God again. Or is it like, oh, so God dreamed me into this illusion. And at my heart, I'm God. I want to have fun in the illusion and make it sure. the best dream I've ever dreamed. You know, yeah. I'm more from that school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because I've got a I, look, that's amazing. And, and it fits with when I read your stuff. That's the vibe I get. And I always think, like, as a society, have we become sort of so corporatized in, say, the last 25, 30 years that we've actually kind of corporatized and depersonalized our imagination? Like, the fact that people are like, convinced they're in the matrix i'm like you, right. you've taken away i'm not a, a very spiritual person but i am to a little bit and you know but do you, do you know what i mean like culture has become yeah. so corporatized you, that you corporatized. make a good point because by by saying that's what it is you take away our personal power yeah it's cool man and yeah and if you go the other way and you say what am i underneath this this uh this playful false identity but the totality of God is very different than saying I'm just something inside a a, a, a program. Yeah, no, very, it very is. Different. It is. It's it's amazing. And then you talk the about part it. of it is. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, no. I was just going to say it's amazing when you say you went to India and went to the the tomb of your teacher. I also think of like you know when the Beatles went to India in '68, yes. and I and I've mm -hmm. I've I read somewhere John Lennon said like. Yeah, okay, the, the, the Maharishi may have been a bit of a comment, but we still got away from the drugs and we got away from the all the leeches and we did the White Album. We kind of, you know, came up with all these songs because we were sort of and, and free. And all of them continued to meditate, even John Lennon, who could be very cynical about this stuff. If you yeah. look at his last interviews, he talks about the fact that he still meditated. Yeah, it's cool. No, you know? it's, it's, so, it's, um, it's so yeah. interesting, isn't it? And the, 
Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing I was going to say is, and, and then it takes it to the next step. So it's, you know, what is this dream? What is the reason to be in the dream? And this, and again, I say this for myself. Mm. I'm not trying to put these ideas or concepts. What I've learned over the years is everybody has to go on their own journey. Oh, yeah. 100%. I'll share mine and you, you see what, what in mine resonates with you and you go off and take it on yours. Totally. But what I've seen over the years is that the fundamental essence of all of this, mm. the fundamental connector between uh, your false identity and mine is love, that the universe is composed, literally composed of love. Wow. Now, all right. I'm going to give you one example. I don't think I've ever told, told this story on a podcast because it doesn't really relate to comics, and yet it does. Mm. You know there's a character in Seekers called Charlie Limbo. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, the homeless he is based guy. On, so Meher Baba used to do work with these, with these beings that are called musts, M-A-S-T-S. Mm -hmm. They're people that if you looked at them from the outside, you would think that they were insane. They lived in, they lived in a toilet or a train station or on the road. And they seem to be babbling. And yet what he said was that these were people who were on a higher spiritual plane, but had lost the connection mm. to the earthly plane, right? Mm. Complete. So that they, they didn't even relate to this level of existence, which is why if they were sitting in a pile of mud for a week, they didn't care. Yeah. And there was one of these musts in particular whose name was Mohammed that, that lived, he, of all the other musts that he worked with over the years didn't stick around anymore. But Mohammed lived at this place in India called Meribad where I was. And, and, and so he used to terrify me because they said he's a fifth plane must. He can see into your head. He wow. can, I mean, it's like, oh, I must, I'm saying if this guy can read my thoughts, I'm staying away. I don't want him seeing the crap that's in my head. You know? <laughs> so, but long story short, because it could be a very long story. I, and I, I was there with my wife uh, and my son for mm. my first marriage on our honeymoon. I took my son on our honeymoon in 1993 mm -hmm. at Maribad. Uh, I've been there like eight times over the years. And, and, and someone, the guy who took care of Mohammed the Must said, hey, would you and your son like to come tomorrow morning and help out with Mohammed? And I was like, okay. You know, yeah. I was a little scared of this guy, you know? And, and, and uh, we, we get there in the morning, and the first thing is he has my son Cody uh, feed him breakfast, feed Mohammed breakfast. Now, mm. you know, at one point the day before, Mohammed had slapped his hand on Cody's head and blessed him, which was a great thing. Mm. Um, and then he said, okay, I want you to go wash Mohammed's face. And this is one of those moments in my life that um, it still stops me in my tracks because I went to wash this man's face and when I touched his skin, uh, I was not touching flesh. Mm. He, it was like every cell in his body was composed of pure divine love. Really? It was one of the most extraordinary experiences I ever had. It was, it was literally, I wrote a, I'll send you a link. I wrote a whole long thing about it on my blog some years back. It's wow. called Touching Love, because that's what it was. Mm. You know, yeah. literally touching a being composed of love. And, and it just melted my heart. Yeah. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, just I was staring at him like I was lovesick, you know, what yeah, I mean? yeah, like, yeah. A, like a lovesick <laughs> teenager. And I'm on my honeymoon. I went back to my wife and I said to my wife, only half jokingly, I'm in love with Mohammed, you know? <laughs> and she went, that's fine. That's fine. Don't worry. Like, you know? <laughs> that's really cool, was, though, man. It yeah. was an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. Extraordinary. Well, I mean, man, thank you for giving us a deep dive because, as you can tell, I, I'm into that kind of stuff, and I think it's amazing, right. personally. And I, and I, when you're talking about these, these guys who aren't even – they're so into the other realm – that they've they've lost touch they've they've kind of left their human shells in a way almost you know yes. like it's yes. it's crazy yes now I'll, we'll bring it back we'll bring it back <sighs> now from from the inner depths 
Um, Batman going sane. Um, we yes. did it recently on the show. I want to point listeners to this one. Joker basically goes sane is the concept. Now, was this a, a – it's great. Was this a Batman Joker pitch you always had in your back pocket or did you come up with it specifically um, for with the Legends of the Dark Knight title, I believe, at the time? Well, there's a long tale here. Everything you oh, really? has got a long story <laughs> attached. Um, so originally I pitched it to Len Wein mm. uh, in maybe 1985 or something. Wow. He was the Batman editor. Yep. And I had this idea. I thought, well, what if? You know, the Joker thinks he's killed Batman. His mind snaps. We snap. We go insane. His mind snaps because his work is complete, you know, and yeah. he goes sane. And where do we follow him? And what happens to him? And, 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 uh, Len said, you know, this is great, but we're just starting to work on this thing with this new writer, Alan Moore, called The Killing Joke. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think there are places where they kind of cross over a little bit, so we can't do both of them. I went, and this, you know, you're used to that as, as a yeah. freelancer. You pitch it, you know, it gets swatted away. You go back, you nurse your wounds, you rework the story a little. So I come back like a year later and I go to Denny O'Neill. Mm. And, and, and I said, well, I took out the Joker part of it, you know, and I put in Hugo Strange and I pitched it and got rejected again for some reason. And the bones of that story, the, 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 um, the Hugo Strange version, mm. ended up becoming, evolving into Craven's Last Hunt. Wow. That's, that that's was where the bones of Craven's Last Hunt yeah. were. Um, and then, but I still had this Joker story in my head. So now yeah. it's like, you know, 10 years from when I originally pitched it and I went to Archie Goodman at Legends of the Dark Knight, he said, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. And uh, I was lucky enough to have Joe Staten on the art. And it was one of those stories, I remember writing it, where certain stories, it's like you have no control. It's like someone opens the floodgates and it just comes yeah. gushing out of you. And, you know, you're just you're just trying to keep up with your fingers on the keyboard, you know? It's a great. And that was one of those stories. I really, yeah. I'm very proud of that story. It's one of my all-time favorites. Oh, you should be. It's great, and that was a great title, Legends of the Dark Knight. There's a lot of great Batman stories in that collection of that they we ran for. I don't know how many issues, like ninety issues or something. But it's a great one. Now I've got a, a, a question before I throw over to Rich. A sort of deeper question about that storyline. I have a theory that Joker's okay. does you have a lot of theories. I know. Yeah, I know. Does Joker's? <laughs> yeah, I know. I do. Does Joker's girlfriend actually exist? Or is the whole happy relationship with the girl in Going Sane in inside his own head? That was my theory. Ah, kind of like what they did in the Joker movie, huh? Yeah. Uh, that no, actually, no. Yeah, that's I, my, yeah. Now, that's a very valid interpretation. And I always say, once we release these stories into the wild, your interpretation in, some, in, in many ways is as valid as mine. You know, So that's a very cool reading of that story. Except that's not my intention. <laughs> I believe cool, that yeah. she really did exist. And in fact, in my mind, she was pregnant. Wow. Oh, wow. Wee. That was the sequel I, you know, I never got to do. You got another you sequel know. to do, Jay. You've got three sequels now from this podcast. I know. <laughs> Every question you ask me ends in a sequel. I think. You could call it uh, Going Saner. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if now, I ever do it, I will steal that title and I will thank go, you for it. Go for it. Uh, now, Rich, you've got a question. Uh, go ahead, man. Uh, it's not my question. So this is emailed in from uh, Michael Kalisham, one of our listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, he writes, uh, JM, you wrote Phantom Stranger and the Trinity of Sin characters in the new 52 titles. Yes. It focused on three sinners who were punished for their crimes by the Magic Council. Phantom Stranger was Judas and was condemned for betraying Jesus. Pandora opened the box and there was the question. Who they never really said uh, his real identity or sin. Who was that character supposed to be? Uh, did you have a background in mind for him before the series ended? 
You know that that character, I believe, was that, that version of the character was cooked up by Dan DiDio. Right. And and I don't know if he. You'd have to ask him if he ever had a concrete thing because I, and probably at the time I was coming up with my own theories, but I, I had nothing definitive because it was it was Dan's concept, as I recall. I could be misremembering, but I, that's what I think. Um, so I don't have an answer to that question. You know, uh, uh, probably had we we did a Trinity of Sin miniseries. It was a great period because I was writing Phantom Stranger. I was writing Justice League Dark. You know, I love the mm. DC supernatural characters. They just they have such a deep bench. Of fantastic characters, and I did this Trinity of Sin thing. Um, so maybe had I spent more time, uh, I might have tumbled to really what was going on behind there, and then probably I would have come up with an answer, and Dan would have said, "No, that's not what I have in mind." So forget. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> so so um, was was it Dan' idea for to make uh, Phantom Stranger Judas as well? Yes, because Dan was writing that book before I was, mm. and then at a certain point he was plotting it, and I was scripting it, and then I took it over completely. And in fact, I have to say. Uh, it's a great concept. I'm not knocking Dan in any way. I wasn't completely comfortable with the Judas thing. It's weird. I agree. It's odd. It's odd. It locks, it also locks him into a specific Christian thing. Sure. And that in turn sort of locks that whole universe into that. My idea that I pitched was that he was this soul. Yeah, he was Judas, but he was a lot of other people Mm. in the course of history Mm. who would have to come in and do some terrible thing that was ultimately for the benefit of mankind. Mm. You know, mm. you know, without Judas's betrayal, Christ isn't crucified, and you don't have the, uh, you know, he's not resurrected, and you don't have that whole, that whole thing happening. So I pit, actually pitched them that idea. Mm. Let's do it this way. You know what? And 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 it was it was a very definitive no. Did, did you do scenes? <laughs> did you do scenes like? Did you write scenes where he's like with Jesus and stuff? Like, did you do flashbacks to that? I don't. I, I think Dan might have. Yeah. I don't think I did any Jesus flashbacks. That's pretty heavy for a DC mainline comic. Although you know? I did have him meet God, so you Fair know what he, he met God. <laughs> but you know, God is bigger and broader and less specific in some ways than Jesus. You know, hundred percent. It's very specific. Well, I'm bringing uh, my Catholic school memory. In the, uh, Jesus yeah. is kind of God made flesh or something like. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. God in human form, and and and. Um, and from my perspective, there have been a, a, quite a number of those, you know. Sure. Down oh, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, no, that's uh, a, that's cool. And, and, you know. Anyway, so yeah, but it was a fun book. It was a fun because anytime I can play with, you know, the supernatural, he goes to hell. I had a story where he went to hell, then he went to heaven, and, and you get to deal with these big concepts. You know, the mm. supernatural stories. You can get psychological. You can get metaphysical. You can get mm. religious. You can get spiritual. You know, I mean, there's so many avenues on those with those supernatural characters. I could have written Justice League Dark for another five years. You know, I it's, loved working it, on that. There's book. a big omnibus. I, I've seen it in the stores. There's yeah, a big omnibus. I have it on my shelf. I, it, have it I tell you what, shelf. you yeah. could do your back by picking that up. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's I empty. love. I love when they collect my stuff in these things. But I think you know, it's not a book you're going to read in the bathtub. I'll tell you that. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> or you could do exercises with it. You know, an omnibus in each hand, and you can really build up your muscles. But they're a little hard to read. They're more like. It's just knowing that you have it or something. You know I mean? Well, they're called shelf porn, JM, because when you put yes. them on the shelf, it's like, look at what I have. But you almost have to get the right angle. And I almost think like a lecturer's table or, or something that would be in a church that a priest would be reading off, whatever that thing is called, <laughs> the stand. You could put the stand on there, get a big high chair, and you'd probably be quite happy. 
you know, like yeah. Oh, if you read it that way, yeah, yeah, I see that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they they did. I think the JL Justice League International omnibus. The first one was like a thousand pages. Yeah, it's enormous. Um, it's yeah. actually you be. This is hilarious, uh, JM. That's actually holding up my laptop. Because I use oh, uh, that, that you, you're just thinking international. It's the first one I have it hold it, it, my laptop stand. It works perfectly. So, you know, not only do I enjoy the story, it's also fulfilling a practical function now. So there you go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, when I have to do when I have to do Zoom calls and things like that, I always get like the big hardcovers and pile them up on my on my table and put yeah, my computer on top. Now, Rich, <laughs> you've got a question about Conan. Well, we're coming up to one of Dave's favorite subjects and characters, uh, which is Conan. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, you uh, you had a Conan the Barbarian run, um, which came uh, directly after Roy Thomas yeah. left after roughly a decade on Conan. Uh, so what, what what's it like for a young writer working on such a, a, a title like Conan? Did you did you enjoy writing Conan? Um, I was terrified. <laughs> I was terrified. Really? Of you know, Conan? I, I, I remember when, when Conan, you know, when the comic first came out, I was a teenager. And I said, wow, what is this? This looks so different. This isn't – and I went out, and, you know, because I, I, that was the way I was. I went out and I bought, you know, some of the paperbacks and mm. fell in love with Robert E. Howard. You know, I just loved those stories. Um, I still remember I turned a friend of mine on to Conan and uh, showed up in my house one day at my apartment uh, and – in a Conan mood and kick the door, you know, just to be, you know, just to be Conan-esque, little knowing that my father was home and was not, I mean, I still remember to this day, my father opening the door and the look that could have incinerated my friend, you know, for, just because he felt like being Conan for a moment, you know, but what I loved about those stories wasn't just, you know, the let's lop off their heads and, and grab the winch, how it really created, just what we we're talking about before, it was very otherworldly. Mm. Very strange and super. You really felt like you walked back through the veil of times, the veil of time to a place that really did once exist that was strange and magical and dangerous. And, you know, stories like, you know, Tower of the Elephant, just like I love those, you know, the best of those stories. And I actually recently reread a few for the first time since I was a teenager. Mm. And I and the good ones are still really good. He was a very good writer. What oh, Howard was, Howard was an excellent writer. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. And then so, you know, Roy Thomas does this brilliant job for 10 years, you know, turns Conan into basically a household name. Mm. And here's little Schmo me just starting out at Marvel. <laughs> and and Jim Shooter says to me, OK, I have finally, you know, I, Jim had liked my work. I finally have a regular book for you, Conan. And I'm like, oh, OK, <laughs> <You know? laughs> I have to step into Roy Thomas's shoes that's really difficult. And Robert E. Howard's shoes. Yeah. And I, I remember working on that first story. And that first story especially was like just so overwritten because I was just trying, can I get the Howard thing? Can I get the Roy Thomas poetry and the, you know, the, the brilliant Howard, you know, purplish prose and create. And, you know, it was it was it was it was scary. It was difficult. I feel grateful that I had a chance to do it. Mm. I had John John Buscema, yeah, big John Buscema, and Gil Kane. Mm. And Mm. I always say, you know, if I could go back in time as the writer that I am now Mm. and write some stories for John Buscema and Gil Kane, well, wouldn't that be something? But you know, I did the very best that I could, and I leave it to others whether these were great stories or not. There were a couple that I really did like. They were a lot of fun. Um, they were a hell of a lot of fun. I I I got the omnibus when it came out. Um, they they oh, collected good. they collected all because I I get all the Conan Conan omnibuses, and I think they're brilliant. And yeah, your stories were cool, man. And you had John Buscema on art. Now, when I'm reading your stuff, it's the seventies. Um, 
were yeah. you pl- were you playing any Dungeons and Dragons in that period? Because that's the vibe I got from your Conan stories. Very no, D&D. not at all. I don't think I even knew what Dungeons and Dragons was. Right. So you're probably point. just you know you're drawing from as you say the well from Robert E. Howard himself. You know, from Howard and 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 my love of fantasy in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in there was your... one story that I remember that that because I remember reading in one book there was a, an offhand reference to Conan's grandfather. Right. And I'm always intrigued by family connections, so I did sure. a story. That involved Conan's grandfather. And what I also remember about that is, you know, Buscema didn't ink himself on that book. He had, I think Bob McLeod was inking that. Yeah. But the first page of that book, he inked himself of that issue. Yeah. And Bob McLeod is a fantastic inker. He can ink, you know, he's fantastic. And he lettered it too, a great lettering. Yeah. Um, but when, you know, like with a lot of artists, when Buscema yeah. inked Buscema, that was really something. You know, yeah, and, and Bob I, McLeod too. You know, Bob McLeod. You know, pencils and inks. He, he's a he's a you know he's a penciler too, and, and uh, uh, his work is is wonderful. Um, but yeah, but Buscema was really something. In, but in, I, in I'll, I'll in, tell the story. I think I oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say in your intro, uh, you mentioned an embarrassing story with Big John Buscema. Is this the right place to share this story? Because you you sort I, of I have yeah. no problem. I already wrote about it. So go for it. so I got rumblings from our editor Louise Simonson that mm. uh, she was Louise Jones back then mm. um, that John was not happy with my stories. Oh really? I had I, I brought two like younger characters in. Yes, uh, these I know. Two young yep. guys. Yep. Yep. And so I, she, she said, you know, call John up and see, see, you know, see what his issues are. And it was very intimidating because here's a guy who was like one of my, one of my, you know, comic book heroes, you yeah. know, the Silver Surfer. I mean, everything he did at yeah. Marvel, but I loved especially his work on Silver Surfer. Mm. Just in, in awe of that. One of my, when I was like in whatever it was, the eighth grade, my favorite comic, you know? Mm. Um, and so, and he was not, my memory is, he was very businesslike. He wasn't sure. like warm and fuzzy. You know, it yeah. wasn't like, hey, buddy, how you doing? Or yeah. you know? yeah. Here's my issues. Here are what I think should be in a Conan story. Here are the things that shouldn't be in a Conan story. So I'm thinking, this is what John Buscema is saying. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So the next issue, I tailored to everything that he asked for. Uh-huh. And he drew that issue, and then he left the book and just worked on the black and white magazine instead. <laughs> so I always say I was the guy that drove John Buscema off Conan. Um, but... <laughs> The next issue, I got Gil Kane, who probably next to Jack Kirby is like my all-time yeah. favorite comic book artist. Not a bad, so, not a bad replacement. Old Gil Kane coming no, in, yeah. No, no, not at all. But what I discovered in the end, for me, I liked reading about Conan more than I liked writing Conan. I, I get that. I, I, I dig that. Yeah. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. he is a very. Uh, I, I find him an amazing character, but he he is very obvious type. You know what I mean? Like. I yes. think you know he's it's it's you know what it's interesting for you as such a young writer to probably you were writing a character that wasn't your natural cup of tea. It probably stretched you a little bit, you know. It did, and that's I, this kind of goes back to what I was saying before. You know, you got to say yes. Sometimes yeah. you're saying yes yeah. just because you're new. You need the gig, exactly. Um, and then you will you will always learn something. You will always grow because you'll go and do something that you haven't done before. And I've said this. You know, I've worked on a bunch of animated stuff for DC and a bunch mm. of these DC animated movies. And and I don't control what the movie's going to be about. They call me up and they sure. say, well, now we're doing so-and-so, mm. you know? And sometimes my hope is up, oh, maybe it's going to be another Batman one. And they say, no, no, we're doing Constantine this time or we're doing Deathlock or whatever. Yeah. And it, well, that wasn't my first choice. But then I take a step back and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then you go, you know, it's like I wouldn't have pitched them Constantine or Deathlock necessarily. Mm. Mm. And then you go in and you fall in love with the character and the story and you, you go off into new arenas and new spaces that you've never worked in before, you know. Mm. And and that's always the challenge. That's why saying yes, unless it's something morally reprehensible. And sure. I don't think I've ever come up 
against anyone asking me to do anything morally reprehensible in kind of comic book story ever. No. You're always going to learn something. You're always going to grow. Yeah, and can I just say that death animated short? Well, that was fantastic. Like, um, that, oh, watched... thank you. That's I think that is you know strangely enough that and the Constantine movie City of Demons are probably yeah. my two favorite things that I've ever done. You know, and I've done you know I've worked on Justice League Unlimited and loved that and mm. Batman Brave of the Bold and so many other things and a number of other yeah. these animated movies. But the Constantine movie really really turned out well, mm. and that death short. Uh, you know, the, 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 the basic idea came from the director, Sam Liu, and I sat down with Sam mm. and Jim Krieg, who was the producer, and the three of us on the phone, and all of us, it was personal, you know, it doesn't always happen, it was deeply personal to all of us. Mm. That main character, because all three of us are creative people yeah. who have had the creative struggles that that main character has, you know? Mm. Mm. And so we all sort of poured heart and soul into that. That little kid... You know, on the floor, mm. drawing when he flashes. That was me. That was my childhood. Wow. That's where that came from, you know? So it was a very, very personal story. And Sam did just such a beautiful job with the directing. Um, and, I, and I hope we did Neil Gaiman proud with that one. Oh, so I'm very, you know, very proud of that. And a great character death as well. Like him. I mean, yes. She's a fantastic character. Now, it wouldn't be an interview uh, on Signal of Doom with Jane DiMatteis if we didn't mention the Clone Saga, which I'm a low... I mean, <laughs> I, I'm a big Clone Saga fan, uh, James. Now... I'm a low-key Judas Traveller fan. Now, as one of the original writers on the Clone Saga, do you remember what the original plans were for this character? And there's an issue, a spectacular Spider-Man, where Judas Traveller is able to destroy buildings with the wave of his hand. Um, do, do, you know, yeah. I, well, did, did you come I, up with I, that? I created the character, as I mm. recall. Mm. And the idea, and again, it's been a long time, so there's lots I don't remember. Sure. I remember that he was an immortal mm. who had dedicated his life to exploring the boundaries between good and evil. Yes, right. The evil and the good, the good and the evil. And I think he I actually think he was a great character. Was. Um maybe he was a wrong maybe he wasn't the right character for a Spider-Man book, but God knows they've done stranger stuff than that over the years. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. you know, I don't remember him being that powerful that he destroyed buildings with a wave of his hand, but maybe it happened. Um but I remember that someone else asked me about that character recently when I was like, what? And I think someone said that there, maybe, what book is it? Some book currently at Marvel is using him. In the oh, book. really? Is he back? I, was, I didn't I, know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. What, wait, Thunderbolt. Is there a new Thunderbolts book out? I don't know. I'd have to check. I'd have to oh, check. Oh, I the, think there, there might be. Yeah. And I think someone told me that he's they're using him in Thunderbolts. Um, wow. I could, again, I could be wrong. Um but anyway, I think he's a fascinating character. He's kind of a character that could have really a series of his own. You yeah, could follow yeah. him down through history at any point in time. He wasn't he wasn't a completely bad guy. He wasn't no. a completely good guy. No. He was just interested in his quest and he would do whatever it took to find the answers to those questions. You, you know who he reminds me of if you were going to do like a solo series? It's like at DC they did solo series of The Shade, the Starman mm -hmm. character. Now Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, he's, uh, he, well, I don't know what the word is, but immoral almost, or whatever you call it, where they're, it's sort of a grey character. It's not good or bad. It's in the middle. Somewhere. Right. You know, neutral right. almost. Now, look, can you take us back? When you were kicking it back at the Clone Saga Spidey conferences with guys like Tom DeFalco, Howard Mackey and the like, um, I, I'm, I'm guessing writing uh, is by its nature usually a fairly solitary activity, but surely it was fun writing in a group like that. Like, how are you guys bouncing off each other? Do you remember those days fondly? I do. Uh, some of my favorite times in comics was uh, was working on those. 
Well, regardless of what people think of the outcome, sure. those meetings were fantastic because we had a great group of guys. Danny Fingeroth, for the main part of when I was on the books, was the group editor. Right. Then Bob Budiansky took over after that. Uh, it was me and Tom and uh, and Danny and Eric Fine was Danny's assistant editor and and uh, Howard Mackey or uh, Terry Cavanaugh and later Todd DeZago. Yeah. We all really liked each other. We all really respected each other and we liked and respected each other enough to act like complete idiots with each other, sure. to be able to tear each other's ideas apart and make fun of each other and laugh and scream and eat pizza or Chinese food. You know, we would, they, you know, we, we, we would have meetings like every two weeks. Yeah. And we'd get together and we'd send out for lunch. They'd lock us in a conference room at Marvel or sometimes we'd bring in the artists and we'd all meet at a hotel somewhere. Um, and it was great fun. It was so much because just what you said, you know, I'm used to working in a, in a room alone with my imaginary friends just to sit around with these guys yeah. and bounce ideas around was just great fun. And, and you know, a lot of these guys are still good friends. I just spoke to Danny and Tom recently. We get together for uh, Zoom lunch periodically. Love know? it. Love it. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. So my frustration with the clone saga, aside from the fact that, you know, and that was really after I left, but it went on and on and on. Sure. And on and we, that was not our intention, was that I had to go, we would work out these stories, and then I had to go home and write chapter two. Yeah, because it's all very much of, like, something happens in Amazing. That then goes over to Spectacular, which goes over to yes, Web of Spider-Man. Yes. Yeah, it's... it's so, yeah. so, you know, as much as I enjoyed creating the stories as a group, writing Chapter 2 month after month sure. was frustrating. And, you know, someone was saying uh, recently, it's, it's too bad that they didn't use the model that they used later on on Spider-Man, where the group would work out the idea, mm. but then one writer would write all the books for that month. Yeah. So you got to yeah. tell a complete story. Then the next month, the next guy wrote it. And everybody still had the same amount of work. It just came out differently. And I think had we done that, I think it would have worked It would have worked even better. Yeah, and no, I probably yeah. stuck around longer. I've got a question. So so with that um, period, how long were you doing the Clone Saga story? Was it like two years or a year and a half? Because like, I know you were doing was amazing. I, was I personally involved? Yeah, yeah. Do you, Do you remember? I, I'm trying to think of... It's got to be at least a year and a half. Sure. And so then I, you know, I also did the, the Lost Years miniseries. Yes. And then, and then even after I left, I came back. Uh, Mike Zek and Bob McLeod and I did the Spider-Man Redemption. Yeah. Miniseries, yeah. which is kind of the last big Ben Riley series. Um, so I did a lot there. And uh, but I think I was only involved with about a year and a half, and it went on for quite some time. Oh yeah, that. no, it it did. And um, so w when you were bouncing ideas around, who would basic like? Okay, so you, I'm imagining, say, you, Tom, Danny, Howard, you're all sitting around talking. Who's corralling that into a structure? Like, is someone writing minutes, you know, or something yes, like that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Eric Fine uh, would be sitting there taking notes. You know, Mark Bernardo was another assistant editor there. They'd all be taking notes and writing stuff down. Yeah. And you know, here's the other thing you learn in a situation like that. Uh, and why I think the other model would be better. Mm. Um, so you all sit down and you talk about a story. And this, is, this will happen with anybody, not just with our group. Yeah. And, and and so you work it out. So, you know, Joe, you've got chapter one. Bob, you've got chapter two. Sam, you got chapter three. We got it all worked out. And everybody goes home and writes that chapter. And then you see Joe's chapter, and it's nothing like what you had in your head. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. Because as soon as we go off, every writer has a different filter. Yes, you know? yeah. Everybody yeah. brings a different perspective and a different voice. So it's you know, um, it, 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 so you know, you read someone else's stuff, and you go, "Oh, that's not what I expected." And they're reading your <laughs> stuff, going, "That's not what I expected," you know. Um, 
but it was still it was a great great time. The other the other frustration, and I, I was talking. I think I was talking to Tom about this recently. Mm. I like to be very spontaneous in my writing. It's hard to be spontaneous when everything is mapped out. Yeah. And I remember yep. one specific thing, one story. There was the female mm. Doctor Octopus, and we had another yep. uh, character named Seaward Trainer. Yep. And as I'm writing the story, you know, the characters talk to me, and at the end of the story, there's this big revelation that Seaward Trainer is Doctor Octopus's father. Mm-hmm. We never discussed it, <laughs> but I can't help it. This is what she told me, so I had to put it in the story. Yeah. And then not knowing that Tom had already written his plot and doesn't address this at all, so poor Tom had to go back, rewrite the beginning of the plot so he could make that work and fit it in. You know, So that was the other concern. It was writing chapter two and, and not having the room to really be spontaneous when you were writing it because you had to stay pretty locked into what you all agreed to in that room. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it's actually, it's almost like a really weird writing experiment, but it, the stakes were quite high, because I remember Tom DeFalco was saying that basically marketing was saying, you got to keep pumping this out because yes. it's selling well, and it's holding the company kind of up, you know, kind of thing. Yes, I mean, that's why this idea that, that the Clone Saga, you know, killed it, killed Spider-Man, you know, when, in that era, when sales, you know, when the, when the bubble burst and sales started to fall, Spider-Man held on, you know, yeah, yeah. and it may have dropped, but it didn't drop like other stuff dropped at that point, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, like I said, they kept it going long after I was gone. I probably came back a, a year or a year and a half later to do that Ben Riley series, you know? Yeah. Um, so when you left, so, so was it, you know, cause you, you obviously left, was it, was it tough to leave amazing in the clone saga and, and you know, your, your bunch of pals, <laughs> Um, was it a case that you got a better offer across the road, or were you actually no, no, a bit no, no, burnt no. out? It was just a quite, I was very busy. You know, Marvel was giving me all the work I could handle. Yeah. And um, like I said, I just felt frustrated at that point. Yeah. No, fair you know, enough. There was, no. all, there was also behind-the-scenes stuff going on up at the company and just sure. a lot of stuff. And it was like just, you know, it just felt sometimes it's right to go. But here's the thing. Yeah. I really missed Spider-Man. Just like I left Spectacular Spider-Man after two years, and then it was like, hey, you want to write Amazing Spider-Man? Well, I thought I was done, but yeah, I want to write Amazing Spider-Man. And then I left Amazing, and then whatever it was a year later, hey, you want to come back and write Spectacular Spider-Man again? Yeah, 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 I want to do that. Yeah, why not? <laughs> like, yeah, he's a he's a great character, and it's a great world with a great set of toys yeah. to play with. So why not? Uh, must have been a real asset for you. You had Mark Bagley on art, who I think's great on your on your he was, issues. He was he he was great. He was really really great. Uh, yeah, and. Uh, Wonderful storyteller and a really good guy. And we did Amazing 400 together, which is yeah. one of my all-time favorite stories that I've ever done also. Um, to me, the two big, the two things out of the Clone Saga that, that mean the most to me were Amazing Spider-Man 400 mm. and the Lost Years miniseries that I did with Ramita Jr. and Klaus Janssen. Those were yeah. the ones for me that really uh, clicked. Well, really, really Amazing clicked. 400 to me is in my top three Spider-Man issues. I love that. Um, oh, thank you. You, you thank do you. the revelation that May, that May was aware he was Spider-Man because she's about to pass away, Spoiler's kids, and she's happy he's Spider-Man. Um, that's a good That's a good move because the other one is like where she's angry, and I'm like, is she really going to be angry? This is Aunt May, you know? Like, well, you know, I did a story, and I, I think it was a little short story, like a backup story with Aunt May, mm. where she talks about her feelings about Spider-Man mm. and the reason why she you know, she always identified, because he's the one that caught Ben's killer. Yep. So she always identified him with Uncle Ben's death. Mm. So it had a very negative, frightening connotation. Gotcha. And the idea was that over the years, she, she understood, and then when, of course, when she knew it was Peter, she understood who and what Spider-Man really, really was. Yeah. You know, I don't care. You know, if I was a teenager... And I was Spider-Man and sneaking out of the house to be Spider-Man. <laughs> my mother would have figured it out. Yeah, yeah, she would have. Like, she would have been washing my costume for me. You know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, you know, to, the idea yeah. with May was that she she couldn't admit it to herself because 
Yeah. Then she'd be in a constant state of anxiety also yeah. worrying about people. So and the she poor had woman was like 90 in the old comics, you know what I mean? Like she, she, yeah. the amount of stress she could take. Um, just to wrap this up, because I do appreciate with, with Clone Saga, you know, but I, my final question on Clone Saga, when that it's revealed, like midway through, you're still writing on the on the title, when it's yeah. revealed that Peter's a clone, was that a hotly contested moment? I, surely around the table, like, did that, did, were you guys, you know, arguing at each other's throats about who thought no, he should, you no, know? No, because that's the idea that sold the story in the first place. You really? wouldn't have done the story if it wasn't for that. Oh. You know, I remember Danny called me up one day and said, you know, Terry Kavanaugh wants to do something with the clone and, and you know, the clones and that. I went, eh, do you want to get involved? And I said, no. Then we had this meeting mm. and Terry was the one who said, no, the idea is Peter is the clone and Ben has been the real one all along. Right. And I love stories about yeah. identity. Yeah. Uh, you know, who am I Who versus who do I think I am? Mm-hmm. Twilight Zone, Philip K. Dick, all that kind of stuff. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, so I went, oh, that's great. Let's do that. And was you read know? a reaction like, surely the readers back then, I mean, I remember it and I was only tangentially there, but I remember there was, would there have been a lot of reader reaction at the time? Were you guys getting a lot of letters and emails and stuff? You know, there probably was, but, you know, there was no big internet thing happening. Sure. The internet was just starting. Yep. So you didn't get the, you know, if there was Twitter then, oh, yeah. you know, God knows what they would have done to us. Probably, unfortunately, knowing Twitter, nothing good. Yeah. You know, yeah, we, but we were just working on the stories and, and having fun and trying our best to tell good stories. But that was the idea. That would have, without the idea that Peter was, was the clone, there would have been no clone saga. And gotcha. the joke is. Uh, you know, Danny went to talk to Tom DeFalco, who was editor in chief, because he wasn't writing any of their books at yep. this point. Yep. To say we had a big meeting with the writers and the artists. You know, Sal was there and Bagley was there, everybody. And we came up with this idea. We got really, really excited. Danny went to see Tom the next morning, and Tom said, We're not doing that. <laughs> and he said, Why don't you just come to the meeting with me? So Tom comes to the meeting. And we were so enthusiastic about the idea that A, we convinced him to do it. And B, we convinced him to take over Spectacular Spider-Man, which didn't have a regular writer at the time. Yeah. So not only did he reverse his decision, he became part of the decision by you know, writing. <laughs> he's a, he's such a cool guy. We had him on the signal, and he was such a sport. Like he, every question, like he's a great know, guy. Yeah, he great he seemed guy. like a really nice man. And and I I, I mean, he was editor in chief for a long period, which I don't think he gets enough credit for. No, and he was, and he yeah. was a great editor in chief, and he was managing editor, you know, under Shooter. You know, he was yeah. doing a lot, you know, running a lot of the show there too under Shooter. Yeah, and he's and a great he, writer. He, he's a great yeah. writer. Like his Spider Man run is great. I love his Spider Man. Fantastic. Run. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, he's, he's a great yeah. guy. He's Tom. Really, he's some people. You know, when you're talking to them, they understand story, and Tom really knows story. Mm. He's, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. cool. Now, and a great guy. Yeah, a great guy. So I mean, it's it's great. Now, Rich, you've got a question um, about Hero Squared. Oh. No, not a question about that. Um, uh, so, James, I know you, you're very busy. You're doing a lot of work at the moment for both Marvel and DC, and, and Dave's already tasked you with three sequels. Um, <laughs> but is there any future plans uh, to to do anything with, with Giffen, another team up, in the vein of, like, your Hero Squared, uh, which I really enjoyed? I, I uh, love Hero Squared. It's my favorite thing that, that came out. with but, Keith, uh, yeah. I, I would. I, I, I say this right now. There are no plans, but I would work with Keith and with Kevin anytime mm. on anything. So if Keith called me up tomorrow and said, "Let's do whatever," I'm there. And if we could grab Kevin and go along with it, I'll do it. Well, I, I can't do it tomorrow. I, I have got a lot. I have. I have to say that right now, I have five different creator-owned projects in the works. Really? Oh okay. yeah. Very busy yeah. At the moment. That's cool. I have a. I have a novella coming out uh, in a couple of months, and I'm just starting another novella. 
Um, I'm really, really super. I feel like there's something else that I'm completely forgetting. I have a lot of stuff going on right <laughs> now and that I'm very excited about. Do you publish that uh, when you do these novellas? Um, do, you, do you line that up with a publisher or do you publish that kind of stuff yourself? Well, this yourself? is interesting. Yeah. There's, there's a website called Neotext, N-E-O-T-E-X-T, mm. and they do a lot of original fiction and original nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got plugged, and, and it's two uh, two movie and TV producers who run the site. Right. And I got plugged into them, and it turns out one of the guys is a big comic book fan. You know, was a fan of my work, and I pitched him an idea, and I and he said, "Yeah, this is great. Let's do it." And uh, it's called The Excavator, and it's mm-hmm. a supernatural thriller. And hopefully, within by maybe by the end of June, it should be out, and I will be hyping it to the sky. Oh man, we'll, um, we'll, I'll keep yeah. an eye on that, and we'll definitely hype it on Signal because we we absolutely love your stuff. So, um, yeah. now I've got a and there's other projects I can't talk about. They're all sure. in you know formative stages, mm. but when, when I'll be happy to come back because uh, yeah. some of them will be done through crowdfunding. So I need to bang the drum on that. Yeah, so yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll be happy to come back and bang that drum. And you've got a big fan base. Let me tell you that when we, we we've had you on this show, the numbers I I really noticed. Like your fans, they they follow you around, JM. I don't know if they're outside your house right now where we're talking, but you know they're <laughs> those, there. Those those five guys go wherever I go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Now I've got a question, and it's a little off the beaten path. Steve Gerber, um, he's held in some reverence here on Signal for many reasons, but I was wondering. Did you have much crossover with him in your career? Any stories about Steve that might come to mind? You know, I'll say two things. One is uh, he's held in great reverence in my world, too. Mm. He was, you know, the great thing about reading comics was as I got older, comics grew up with me. Sure. So, you know, in the when I was, you know, in junior high school, when I might have maybe I would have stopped reading comics and, and I got turned on to Marvel, you know, and I, oh, wow, I'll keep reading. Mm. And then I'm a teenager and it's another stage, but maybe I'll stop reading this stuff. And people like Steve Gerber, mm. uh, there were a lot of great writers working then, Engelhart and Ween mm. and Doug Munch and all those guys. But Steve Gerber's stuff like went through me like a spear. Yeah. Loved, you know, for the first time I read a Steve Gerber story, and I think the first story was just him dialoguing somebody else's plot and maybe a Hulk story. But I remember going, this guy's good. He's got something. And I followed him, whatever he did. I didn't care if it was Son of Satan or mm. Defenders or whatever weird whatever he was writing i would read i loved his stuff yeah he, he unfortunately was, yeah. i only met him once uh, i was really? in la visiting mm. visiting with marv wolfman and we we all went out to dinner together and he seemed like a really nice guy but i never never got to know him but i certainly knew him through his work and i still revere his work great influence on me mm. he's one of those guys that said you know what even within the, the realm of super DC Universe or the Marvel Universe, mm. comics can be so much more. There's so much more subject matter that you can play with here. You he, know? he pushed that. He pushed that field. Like I, I think he pushed yes. the genre along. Um, you know, he's and he we we did his Doctor Fate, which he did very sadly. He was writing it like literally on his in the hospital bed. It's amazing. Oh, really? It's a, it, wow. but it's amazing, JM. Uh, like I'm like. I mean, I'm 47, and I, and I feel like I'm burning out. And and this guy's doing it like there, and he's still putting the the words together and still stringing together a fantastic story. So I guess some people are just faded; they're just destined to be storytellers, you know. Well, here here's the thing, you know, it's exactly what you said. It's what we do, mm. and I'm like, well, am I going to retire? No. Yeah. As long as I have a story to tell. Yeah. Yeah. And there's always, you know, every time I think I'm done. There have been several times over the years where oh, I think I'm done, you know, <laughs> I'm not. And then here comes the next story. The, one of the hardest things I ever had to do, and this may be 20 years ago, mm. uh, there were some things going on in my life. And I thought, do I want to still be a writer? 
right? Do I want to go and do, I had fantasies. I'm going to go off and be a therapist, you know, and go right. back to school, right. whatever, you yeah. know, whatever yeah. I was thinking of at the yeah. time. And what I had to really do, and it was real, I had to kind of surrender to the universe, take my writer self and surrender it and give it up, give it up to the universe right. because, you know, separate it from me so I could figure out who I am and what I want to do. Because, you know, what we do and who we are mm. interlocks, you know, and when you're, when you're in the creative arts, you know, my stories are me and it's yeah. hard to differentiate between me yeah. and the characters and the stories. And, and so I, it was a very painful, it was a difficult thing to give that up and say, okay, whatever the answer comes back, if the answer is no, then I won't do it anymore. Mm. And the answer that I got back was basically, this is the way the universe talks to me. Hey, idiot, <laughs> you're a writer. That's yeah. what you do. If, if I wasn't being paid to do it, I'd be laying on the floor, staring into space, making up stories anyway. Well, that's right. You know? Like who you like? It's it's the, that's the thing. Like you know, the stories are you, but who are you without the stories? If you stop, like you know, where does it you know, begin and end? Like for you in a regular work day, are you one of these guys? Like, are you a machine? Are you there from nine to five? And or, no, you I've know? never. I've you know, it, it depends on the story, on the mm. deadline. Mm. You know, it could be sometimes I could be thinking about a story for for two weeks and not yeah. touching the computer and blitz through it. You know. Mm. Uh, you know, I've blitzed through the draft of an entire, you know, animated movie in a few days mm. because I've I've worked on it in my head yeah. for two yeah. weeks before them, you know. So it's never been that way. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, clocking in now and I'm working till then and da 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 da. Yeah, yeah. No, I follow I follow the muse. You know, when mm. when my when my kids were younger, they, they provided a sort of a bat because well, got to take the kids to school. Okay, yep. I'll start working. Got to pick the kids up. Got to stop working. Mm. When once my daughter, who's my youngest, went off to college, was like, oh my god, I have no guardrails. So I can do whatever <laughs> I want, whenever I want it. You know, so I float through the day. Maybe I, you know, spend three or four hours avoiding work, and then all of a sudden I'm obsessed, and and then off I go. You know, mm. and then at a certain point, certain stories just take over, and you can't stop. Do you? Would you? I think, I think the life. I think the life of like a a writer and artist is that it's not it's not a job that you retire from because your imagination never retires. Like your, exactly, your experience beautiful never way, retires. It's, it's always there. You yeah, also need a very supporting partner. A lot of I think a lot of writers have a very supportive, you know, wife or husband as well. Like yes, you know, my I, wife knows that she can be talking to me sometimes. And <laughs> she'll go, she'll always say, you know, where did you just go? Oh, I was just yeah. thinking about that that story I was working on, and, and you know, I just worked out what's going to happen. And, you know. like, right, could you listen, Spider Man's back you in the tomb. Spider Man's back in the grave. I've yeah. got to get him out again. <laughs> now, right. um, but it's true; they, yeah. they take over, and your imagination just does what it does, and you can't control mm. it, you know. And that's the fascinating thing to me because you can't you can't force a story to happen. No, you know, yeah. it's like it's it and it's it's you got once that door is open, then the story takes over. But I see. I think that's a key. That's such an interesting thing you say because I reckon one of the key challenges of being in uh, working at Marvel or DC or any of the major you know publishers. But having a, you've got to turn in your amazing Spider-Man script every month, JM. So yes, yes. that's got to – when you're doing that, okay, everyone – any writer with any talent can do that for a few months. But when you've got to do it for month after month after month, two or three, maybe four titles, that's when I think you, you must really have to put your nose to the grindstone then, you know? Well, you know what it is? It's like – I'm thinking about it as you're saying it. It's like going to the gym. Yeah. But for your, but for your imagination. Yeah. You know, if you said to me, here's one story, you have six months to write it. I'd go through a very specific, probably really long process of laying around, avoiding it, thinking about yeah. it, taking walks, and finally getting up and starting to write and blah, blah, blah. You know, when it, when you're on a deadline, you go through the same exact process, but you might go through it in three days. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, I've had periods, you know, especially uh, some years back where I was writing three, where I was writing three or four books a month and sometimes an annual, you know, and all that stuff. So it's like, okay, what's the next story? And and when I first got to Marvel and and suddenly I was writing three books a month Mm. for the first few months, I was, I was overwhelmed. But the more, the more you do it, it's like Mm. going to the gym. The more you exercise the muscles of your imagination, the more that door opens, because it's all about the connection between the conscious and the unconscious mind. And it's the unconscious mind that comes up with the stories. It's the conscious mind that edits it and, and shapes it up. Mm. But the essence and the heart of that story comes from the unconscious. And the it, more you use the muscles of your imagination, the wider that door opens. It's fascinating because what you're saying, is we've had many times Chuck Dixon, a big friend of the show on the show, and he was writing at DC like six, seven titles a month. And I would say to him, how did you do it and tailor in events? And he was saying... He wrote so far ahead that if events, you know, they said, okay, Batman's, you know, an earthquake's going to happen. He was writing so far ahead he could adjust his storylines. Interesting. Never, yeah, he, 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 that was his, because he never had a problem with deadlines because he did so much work in advance. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and we, you're a little bit more like, you, it sounds to me like you're a little bit more, not city of pants is not the right term, but like you're a little bit more, it's instinctive, so you'll probably have to. Yes, you know, yeah. I I write intuitively, but I also respect the deadline. You know, yeah, I'm not yeah. someone who's going to, you know, unless there's some some hor- horrible circumstance or something comes up, mm. you know, I'm not going to screw up your deadline. I'm going to do my very very best because mm. you know, monthly comics especially, it's a machine. It's a grind. And yeah. if you don't, and if you say you're working plot first, you know what they call Marvel style. Mm. If you don't turn in that plot, the artist has nothing to draw. Yeah. Yeah. And if the artist has nothing to draw, then the inker has nothing to ink, and the letterer has nothing to letter, and the colorist has nothing mm. to color. So you're like you're knocking down a whole row of dominoes when you screw up. Oh yeah, and, and you've been in the industry for so long, like you wouldn't be around this long if if you were letting people down. Like you know, they respect yeah. what you're doing. Um, now uh, I've got a quick question on Moon Knight because we've got a couple. Okay, of... I'm just going to say one one or two more questions that I'm going to have to go. Yeah, no, no, so you know. no, no yeah, problems yeah. at all. Well, we're almost done. We are almost oh, done. Yeah, so we are almost done. It works out perfectly. Um, so just with Moon Knight, um, you had, did a very dark and metaphysical take on Moon Knight, and you had a resurrection scene. He comes back, and you explored the concept of an almost pacifist Moon Knight. Uh, that must have been quite a leap at the time, um, JM. Uh, you know, what was the reaction like? Because uh, it wasn't a long run, but it was a good run. No, it was it was maybe seven or eight issues or mm. something. And I think, yeah, you know, you, you have to remember, I've written a lot of stuff. Sure, yeah. And over a lot of years. And so Moon Knight was a, was a short window. I remember the story Scarlet Redemption. Yes. And I think as you're saying it, I, yeah, I'm remembering that he was – what he came out of that death state was he wanted to find another way to do this, mm. a better way to do this, which is an idea that I, I explored much more deeply in a thing I did for IDW called The Life and Times of Savior 28. But so that was the idea going forward. And my my memory is once I left the book, mm. they they completely ignored me. <laughs> yeah, they went right. right back. I'm going to punch you in the face. Yeah. You know? he, um, it was a phase he went through. <laughs> like, yeah. Get over it. Get over it. You know, um, but but uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed I enjoyed working on the book, and I think it was one of the first things that Ron Garney ever did at Marvel. Really? And, okay. And he was very new then, but he did a really excellent job. Oh, it's got Tom great Hall, artwork. It's it's a it's very well. sort of introspective, like, it's, yes. it's, it's cool. Yeah. Like, yeah. Now, I do want to mention, I, I've got a final question, but before we have that, I want to mention your Imagination 101 workshops. I think it's a great opportunity for writers to learn from you, JM. Um, with COVID, have you been able to transition these workshops to virtual? 
Well, I did last year, I did two of them online and it worked out really, really great. Mm. And then I got super, super busy yep. and just haven't had a chance to put it together, but I will again, I'm sure. But the other thing that I do mm. along with the imagination workshops is called a creation point story consultation. If you go to my website, uh, jmdmateus.com, you'll see it there. So I work with writers one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. So you've got a story, you've got a comic book miniseries, you've got a screenplay, you've got a short story, whatever it is. And I love doing this. So you come to me with your project. Uh, I read it. We get on Skype. We talk just like we're talking right now. Sure. We talk about it. You know, we and I, I have a guy I'm working with right now, and it's, he's been working on like a six issue miniseries. We've been working on this thing for about a year together. Mm. And watching him, you know, me reading it, giving him notes, him taking the notes, filtering it through his own his own creativity, and watching mm. this story get better and better every month until this guy has something you know that's really substantial. Yeah. Um. And and I've I've done it with people with screenplays with all kinds of things. So I really love doing that. So if you're and and there's there's a lot of fun work doing the workshop because you have a group of people, mm. but there's something also very magical about just working one-on-one -on -one with people. Oh, I think what so, an opportunity. Uh, and that's, that's always ongoing. I always have multiple clients that I'm working with that way. So if anyone is interested, just go to my website. There's an email address there. You can email me and we'll chat about it. Excellent. And I'll put that into the show notes as well because I think that is a really fantastic opportunity. Now, final question. Uh, we, we, you know, let's go back. We, last time you, you spoke about meeting John Lennon twice, and so we know the story. Okay. Um, now, this is kind of a what-if question. So it's, you know, it was the mid-'70s. From memory, he was recording the rock and roll album. Now, I read your a very detailed uh, an, you know, analysis. Now, I know he wasn't in the mood, and it wasn't the time that you could ask for a request but let's just yeah. say he was. Let's just assume you were in the in the studio and, and John's jamming. He's in a good mood. Maybe he's a little loose. And okay. if, if you were in a position where he you felt like he was taking a request, what song would you have asked for? Wow. Yeah, that's the question. Wow. <laughs> and it could be any song from any, you know, it's John Lennon, right. so go for it. Right, right, you know. God, this entire album I'd ask him to play. I'd say, could you play all? <laughs> could you play the entire Walls and Bridges album for me, please? He's like, one, two, three. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Could you imagine? You know, uh, instant karma. Um, mm. Could could we get a could we get an orchestra in here? Could you do a day in the life? Do you mind? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could, could, could we bring Field. Paul in? Could we get Paul to come and do? Could you do God from the Plastic Ono Band album? You know, what I mean, there's so I, yeah. I don't know if I could come up with one. You know, because well. Because it was just him jamming with his band in that yeah. little space, it would have to be something really just rock and rolly, you know, yeah. straight ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, he could have done something like Working Class Hero. That would have been oh, an easy yeah. one to do. Jesus, you know, that that's a great song. That's a great yeah. song. And you mentioned God. Song. God's one of my favorites. So I remember as a teenager, I was used to be in the car going, I don't believe in Beatles. Yeah. And then I was kind of like, right. but I do believe in Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> they put out they put out like an a big uh, massive anniversary edition last year. Mm. Um, it was fa it, you know I love that album. I think it's, I actually think it's one of the greatest albums by anybody ever made ever. Oh, but great, listening yeah. to the new the new edition with all the outtakes and the different versions and the new mix, it's like it's even better. It's what a, what an album. And then there's an entire entire album of just studio jams and it's just Lennon, Ringo and Klaus Warman, you know, just jamming on old rock and roll songs. It's great. That's great. Now, I know for me, um, it would be God or one of my favorite songs of his is Mind Games. I love that song. Oh, that's a great song. <laughs> I just yeah. think it's one of the best songs. He had so many great songs. Yeah, Do yeah. you think, uh, I'm going to give you an idea here, JM. I always think that five-year period where he wasn't recording, um, surely some stuff mm -hmm. was going down that, you know, I'm surprised they haven't done sort of like a biopic or something like that. 
it feels like you you could do flashback scenes to him in the in, in the in the hotel. You know what I mean? And he's thinking about like mm-hmm. aspects of his life and stuff like that. Like I just feel well. I just read that they actually are doing a, a, a major motion picture about his life. Are they? I really? just read it this past week. But it's funny, and I can't get into it because I don't want to give it. Sure. Just literally, I think it was yesterday morning. I was laying in bed. Mm. And I had an idea for a John Lennon story. Do it, man. <laughs> I, I, I'd be, read that. I'd read really, your John Lennon story in a heartbeat. Really, really, really something really kind of crazy off the wall and very different. But using my love of Lennon and using him as a protagonist in the story. And I went, wow, I wonder if I could do that. Yeah. So maybe once I'm through with all this stuff I'm working on now, I'll start I'll start developing that. Yeah. Providing that that, you know. You know, you never know what, 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 you know whether you're going to get sued if you if you make some. I know people sure. have written novels and used Lennon as characters sure. in novels sure. and things. So I think I think in fiction you can do it. I think the problem is maybe if it was a comic book and you use someone's likeness, then yeah. you get in trouble. Yeah, that that that's probably you're probably right there. I I think as I think one of the few things to do is with the songs themselves. So if you can steer away from him actually singing the songs with the right. lyrics, I, 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 you can, you can write around it. I look, I've, I've written three books and Sinatra turns up in every single one of them, and I haven't been sued <laughs> yet. Great. So you know, um, well, I also, I always had an idea. I'm thinking about that period of time, you know, of, of Lennon in L.A. and that crazy period. Yeah. And, you know, he's at a card game, you know, and he's like with Frank Sinatra. I'm making this up. Yeah. You know, Frank Sinatra, Desi Arnaz, you throw together a lot of weird people that have had struggles in their lives, you know. Sure. And you just spend a whole movie. It's just a card game with John Lennon and Frank Sinatra and a couple other guys. I would you know, love just, that. <laughs> that's not the that's not the idea I'm talking about. But I used, I thought about that, too. Well, I mean, just before we wrap up, I, I reckon that uh, if you think of a collection, a gathering of legends outside of the Rat Pack, the Travelling Wilburys have to be right up there too. Like, yeah, every yeah. one of them is a biopic and they've all assembled. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Like Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Tom Petty, Jeff Lee and Roy Orbison, like every one of them's a legend, you know? And, yeah, and I remember there, there was a Harrison quote to tie it together where he said, if John was alive, he would have been a Wilbury too. Oh, he would have been. I, I think I think if if I think the world would be a bit different if John Lennon had survived. You know, I, yeah. I actually I actually yeah. I honestly feel culture lost something significant that day, personally. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know what? I, I wanna leave us on an uplifting note. Thank you so much, JM, for your time. We've really enjoyed it. You've gone deep. You've gone all over the place. You've talked clones. Well, you, We've you, gone you aliens. into the water. What could I do? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, you take care of yourself, and thank you very much, JM. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Fantastic talking with you, JM. Mm-hmm.